Hanukkah. Simon, thank you so much. Heavenly Father, would you take the words of my lips and would you touch our hearts by the power of your spirit as we celebrate again being a covenant people. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Brexit letter has been sent and an army of civil servants, politicians and business persons is going to attempt to unravel a treaty that's been with us since 1973. And it's a treaty that has spawned a mountain of protocols, concordances, trade agreements, legislation, entendres, pledges, warrants, bonds, guarantees, contracts, and covenants. Quite a lot to unravel. So, what are the implications for us? Well, clearly, Brussels sprouts are going to have to be renamed. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Some, somebody has suggested Westminster growths. Don't know how you feel about that. Uh, but you can now, the good news is you can now buy a Brexit calculator. A Brexit calculator. Nothing adds up. Nothing adds up but it's excellent at taking away and division. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the light bulb question. How many Brexiteers does it take to unscrew a light bulb? And if you want to know the answer, please come and see me at the end of the service. So yes, contracts, covenants, pledges and agreements, they are a fact of our everyday life. Indeed, the whole human race from the beginning of time has been a covenanted people, a people on the receiving end of a divine promise. And as Christians, of course, we've contracted in to the new covenant with its promise of redemption and eternal life. But that new covenant, the one we find in the Gospels and in the Epistles, that, of course, wasn't the first covenant that God extended to us, his creatures, and indeed to all his created world. When God created the world in one whirlwind week, he pronounced it very good. And then he gave our ancestors the keys to the whole creation, with one notable exception. A single fruit tree with a fence around it and a small sign that said, private, keep off, do not pick. But that proved too much. Somebody was tempted, and before the new creation was hardly unwrapped, there it was, broken. First, the trespass with the fruit, then the hiding away from God in the garden, and then the shameful, sad eviction which must have broken God's heart. But before sending them away from Eden forever, God's grace was already at work, busy with needle and thread, making them something to wear when they walked out of the gates for the last time. Only when they did walk out of the gates, <coughs> things got more out of hand. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, killed his brother Abel, the first murder, but sadly not the last. And after that, humankind just went on breaking what God had made until by chapter 6 of Genesis, God 
ran out of pity. I will wipe them from the face of the earth, that human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret I have made them. What a catastrophe to go in five short chapters from God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, to I regret that I have made them. Fortunately for us, Noah found favor in God's sight, and our sentence of annihilation got commuted, and God gave him the blueprint for the ark. Some of you may remember, hands up if you do, Terry and Margie Mortensen, who used to worship with us. There's a few hands going up. Nowadays, Terry tours worldwide preaching on Genesis. And one of his great ambitions was always to build a life-size replica of the ark to the biblical proportions. And I think we can see what it looks like. Huge. You, you, don't, you don't realize the actual size of the thing. It's apparently 510 feet long. It's as long as a, as a large cargo ship. And they even tested a model of the hull in, a, in an independent ship tank to prove that it was seaworthy. In fact, where's Jerry? Jerry, you'll appreciate this. Apparently, the dimensions in the Bible are the same ones, the proportions are the same ones the Royal Navy use for, for their architecture. Apparently, those proportions are so perfect. Absolutely amazing. I suppose, I suppose when we think of the flood, we tend to focus on Noah and on his zoo because they're the ones that survived. But no one and nothing else did. The cleansing was total, the destruction was complete, and when the waters finally subsided after the flood, it was as though the worst hurricanes, the worst typhoons, the worst tsunamis had all combined together to cover the entire globe. True, God had willed it, but the result was so amazing that God willed never again to do such a thing. I establish my covenant with you, God said to Noah when it was all over, that never again, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall, be there, shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And as a sign of that covenant, God set a rainbow in the clouds as much to jog his memory as to jog ours. When the rainbow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember, God said. And so creation got a, got a fresh start, a second chance on firm, dry ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know really anybody whose spirits aren't improved by seeing a rainbow. It doesn't seem to matter whether you're stuck in traffic on a Friday afternoon in the rush hour, or whether you're walking the dog on the hog's back, the sky goes cloudy gray, and the next minute there's this perfect arch of dazzling color, and all you can do is stop and marvel. Of course, the logical part of our brains tells us that it's just a trick that the sun plays, the refraction of light in drops of water. But other parts of me, my heart, my soul, they get a different message. They get a reaffirmation of God's covenant promise never again to flood the earth. And that covenant promise of peace, God's peace, lives with us today, his covenant people. 
Rainbows are his gift to us. Not just a reminder of his promise, but also a constant reminder of God's grace. In fact, our history, the history of humankind, can be traced in terms of God's covenant promises. There was the promise of peace to Noah, the promise of a land and a nation to Abraham and Sarah, the covenant promises of the law to Moses, and then the promises of a son to Mary, the promises of that son to our forebearers, the promises of that son to us and to generations still to come. At heart, at heart, there's still the same covenant promise, a covenant promise of intimate relationship with our creator God. But that promise has taken different forms over the centuries as God has struggled to remain faithful time and time again to us, his willful, wayward creatures. Established by God in creation, the covenant has survived floods and famines, wars and the rise and fall of empires. The wealth, poverty to divide we see today in our culture, it may be the worst blow the covenant has ever been dealt. But so far, so far, it has survived that too. And still today, the covenant promise holds good. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That's the heart of it. Our belonging to God and God belonging to us. A covenant promise of intimate relationship with a creator God. Notice there are no ifs about it. I shall be your God and you shall be my people if you obey my laws, if you follow my commandments, if you sell all you have and follow me. No, there are no ifs about it. God's covenant with Noah had no conditions whatsoever. There's not one word in it about what Noah has to do, what he must or mustn't do. It's a very one-sided contract. It's all about what God will do and will not do. I won't flood the earth again, and I won't forget this promise. I'm hanging a rainbow in the skies to remind me of the covenant that's been made between you and me and every living creature that is with you for all generations. And you see, it's not just Noah and his family that received that promise. It's not just the humans that received that promise. Every living creature that came out of that ark is, is included so, we have to wonder, it would appear that God has had quite a change of heart. So, what in the world has happened, we might ask? Because at the beginning of the flood story, as we heard when Simon read it, God is ready to drown the whole earth. Now, at the end of the story, it would seem there's been a major shift in the divine mindset. Humankind won't change. The God who knows everything knows that. In no time at all, Jacob will be stealing Esau's birthright, Aaron will be dancing around a golden calf, and David will be plotting ways to get rid of Bathsheba and send a husband, get rid of Bathsheba's husband and send him off to the front line of battle. So the story of the covenant isn't a story about humankind having a change of heart. 
Do you see, it's, it's a story about a changing God who now opts for relationship instead of retribution. For now gone, God decides to bind himself to his, crea to his creation in peace, promising himself to us unconditionally, although he knows it will wound him. But wounded, he elects to be, whatever the cost, whatever the price he has to pay. In this remarkable covenant promise, God chooses to align himself with his cantankerous creation, regardless of the price that has to be paid. If there's pain in the world, and there is going to be pain in the world, then God will share it. God's promise to all of us is life, not death. Genesis 9, an everlasting covenant, everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Of course, bad things continue to happen, but this covenant promise is our assurance that none of them, none of them, is rooted in God's ill will towards us. God is our ally, not our enemy. His will for us is life, not death. And not just us two-legged creatures, but the four-legged ones as well, and the winged ones, and those with no legs at all. All species, all species are included as covenant partners with a divine creator. And because as humankind, we're uniquely made in the image of the Creator, that makes us partners in God's plan. Because like Him, we love life too. It means we too get wounded by the brokenness we see around us and the brokenness in which we participate. It's no small wonder that this divine covenant we enjoy is so one-sided. We need do nothing because God in Christ has done everything. And yet, and yet, he's still relying on us. He's relying on us to fulfill his kingdom promises of new life here and now. He's relying on us to hasten the time when his covenant can be fully and completed. When heaven and earth will be fused together and there will be no more death, or pain, or sorrow. Bishop N.T. Wright sums it up, I think, very well. He says, Every act of love done in Christ by spirit, justice, peace, healing, seeking freedom, is an earthly event in a long history that implements Jesus' resurrection and anticipates new creation, new earth, and new heaven. Every act of love that we do. I don't know, but maybe if we spent less time being preoccupied with Brexit and more time working out the details of this divine contract, cajoling our fellow human beings to participate in it too, deterring them from acts of misery to acts of grace-filled kindness, deterring them from seeing rhino horns as aphrodisiacs and elephant tusks as trophies, 
Maybe if we did that, we'd have a better part, a better job in this covenant. Shifting the balance from death to life wherever we can. Hastening that implementation of Jesus' resurrection, that new creation, new earth, and new heaven, where there will be no more pain and death. Until that time, God's eternal, everlasting promise never to flood the earth again holds good. And as a sailor, I rather like the idea of being metaphorically at sea, being a member of the crew in the Ark of the Covenant. Inside our Ark, my Ark, it's a bit like, well, it's about like, a bit like all of us are the crew too, with responsibilities for the passengers. Abandoned Romanian children, frightened, traumatized refugees fleeing the horrors of war-torn Syria. The young 15-year-old I heard about yesterday from Afghanistan, so traumatized, who's lost his parents, you can't even look you in the face. Starving children from the Sudan who are gnawing away at hibiscus blossoms because there's nothing else left to eat. Endangered species, all of them, all of them, all of them and us waiting and wondering, please God, when, when will the dove return with the olive branch in her beak? If, as humankind, we still insist on filling up our ark with the dispossessed and the suffering, the marginalized and the downtrodden, it may be less to do with divine decree than our own amnesia, because we've forgotten whose covenant partners we are, and how that covenant means for us to be bailing out water and handing out life jackets just as fast as we can, so that every living creature, every living creature who rides in this present day ark with us may share in the unmitigated joy of one day walking down that rickety gangplank to plant a foot, a hoof, or a paw on dry land. Which brings me, at the finish, back to that sign in the sky, the sign of a covenant promise that perhaps we've been taking for granted a little too often. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between you and me and every living creature with you a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Perhaps God isn't the only one who needs a rainbow. Perhaps we need one too, a reminder of the covenant between God and all creation between us and every creature who shares the breath of life with us. So that however stuffy the climate gets inside our ark, we can still, like God, remember. We can still search the sky for the sign that we know that is there, even when we can't see. We can stay awake to it, to God and to one another, until the next time we look up and see it, a perfect curve of color stretching clear across the sky. God's everlasting covenant promise to us, his covenant people who live in his embrace. Amen.